0: Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, our, our text this morning, the first eight verses of the chapter. As we only have a few more weeks in this book. Uh, next time we'll look at chapter 11 verse 9 to chapter 12 verse 8 and then uh, on the last Sunday of the month, we'll get the concluding word of the last few verses of chapter 12, and then, as you know, the, he, uh, my practice has been here at IPC over these many years now. Uh, we take December to do a Christmas in series, um, because I want to persuade you that we can get to Jesus anywhere in the Bible, uh, which means we can get to Christmas from almost anywhere in the Bible. So we're going to be looking at Christmas in the Psalms this year, starting on the first Sunday of December. December. But this morning we come to these verses that on the, on the surface uh, don't seem to connect well with one another. And yet what I hope you'll see is that they're all telling us ultimately that life is a profoundly risky business. And yet though it's risky, God is the one who's in control. And because God's in control, we can live life with, with courageous purpose under his sovereign rule. But in order to see that this morning and even more benefit spiritually as a result, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come as your people this morning, uh, desiring for you to do your work in our hearts and lives. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and do your peculiar work in our hearts. Your your word tells us that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. That is, they're discerned by the Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come so that we might discern spiritual things, uh, discern these things of the Spirit of God written in Holy Scripture. Above all, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see this one who who rules over us and his sovereign goodness comes to us in and through Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God, who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, early in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, you might remember, those of you who've read it, Frodo makes a decision. Um, and the decision is to sell Bag End, the home that he and Bilbo shared. Ostensibly, he's selling Bag End to re- return to his family's ancestral land in Buckland. But really, he's heading on a journey to, to Rivendale, at least. Because Frodo has Bilbo's magic ring. Not, not fully knowing what the ring pretends for him or for Middle-earth. All he knows is that Gandalf the wizard is concerned and has sent him out on this journey. And so as he's making his way to Buckland, Frodo reflects in this way. He said, Bilbo used often to say that there was only one road, that it was like a great river. Its springs were at every doorstep, and its path was its tributary. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door, he used to say. You step onto the road, and and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And as it happened for Frodo, those of you who know the story, it was a dangerous business. The road upon which she traveled took him right to Mount Doom. But it's a dangerous business for us as well. We go out our doors, and, and we don't know what will happen We don't know where we'll be swept off to. We don't know how our lives will turn out. That's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to see. He wants us to see that life is a risky, dangerous business. It's a dangerous thing going outside our doors, but we can do so with great confidence. Great confidence that God the King has ordered this time And has ordered our lives so that we might know that which is good and true and beautiful. The gifts that he gives us so that these gifts of of truth, beauty, and excellence might lead us to the giver himself, might lead us to God. Life is dangerous and risky, yes, but there's a purpose in it. The preacher's been telling us that through this last Half the second half that began in Chapter Six in this book of Ecclesiastes. Back in Chapter Nine, the preacher had told us that that life is risky because of its because of its unpredictability. But he's also telling us something else. And he's picking up a theme that he he'd already mentioned back in chapter eight. Here, especially in these eight verses in chapter eleven. He wants us to see not only that life is risky because of its unpredictability, but also that life is risky because of our ignorance. We simply don't know. We, we don't know what's going to happen. We, we don't know how to exert real meaningful, meaningful control over our lives. Uh, over and again, uh, we are confronted with our, with our ignorance. And even in these eight verses that we've read together this morning, the preacher wants us not just to know, but also to feel this sense of ignorance as he tells us over and again, three times in fact, that our lives are risky because we simply do not know. You don't know what disasters might happen. He tells us that in verse 2. If your Bibles are open, you might might see that. He says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. And that's true, isn't it? We, we, We don't know. We don't know what natural disasters might come. We don't know what social disasters might come. Whether the SARS virus in late 2019 might become COVID and and shut our entire world down, it seems, for for three years, or whether there's some new future disaster that might strike. For example, artificial intelligence is all in the news, and, and yet we can hardly understand all of the risks involved and what technologists and engineers have developed. A couple of months ago in the Atlantic magazine, there was a long article on Sam Altman, who is the CEO of OpenAI. Um, that company, led by Altman, is is the company that's given us the now famous, or if you're a teacher at any level of school, infamous Chat GPT. Um, that it can, their company also continues to develop not just Chat GPT, but other forms of more advanced AI. One of the things that was pr- profoundly disturbing about the article. Um, was its description of of Altman's vision, which struck me, at least, as demonstrating utter naivete uh, about the uses that this technology might be put to. What what could go wrong? What disasters might happen with AI? Uh, On the one hand, Altman and his company's co-founders, one of whom was Elon Musk, they have an almost messianic understanding of what AI can do. Uh, In the article's words, they wanted to summon a superintelligence into the world, an intellect decisively superior to that of any human, one that might develop its own volition or even work against its human programmers. But on the other hand, Altman freely admits that the future of AI is uncertain and beset with serious dangers. Altman doesn't know how powerful AI will become, or what its ascendance might mean for the average person, or whether it would put all humanity at risk. But Altman's response to that risk? Well, trust us. Just trust us. We'll make sure that it serves humanity and doesn't destroy humanity. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because neither Altman, nor his colleagues, nor anyone else really knows what might happen? What, what kind of malevolent forces might, might seize, use, seize their technology to, to use for their own ends? What disasters might be unleashed on the earth? We just don't know. Life is risky because we don't know what disasters might come. But life is also risky, the preacher tells us, because you don't know the work of God. You don't know what disasters might come, but you also, you do not know the work of God. He says that in verse 5. As you do not know the way, the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. While science and technology have tried to push forward the boundaries of knowledge, the fact is we don't know how this happens. We don't know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child. Now that hasn't stopped theologians and philosophers and scientists from debating how this happens, but the answers are they're just simply unconvincing. And they're unconvincing that we, because we just don't know. We don't know how the immaterial part of us and the material part of us come together in our mother's wombs we, we, we don't know how, how we become truly human beings. And because we don't know, what do we say? Well, we say life's a miracle. We, we say that it's something supernatural. And ultimately, every child that's born, when we're, when we're there to receive that child, we say this is the work of God. This is, this is living proof of God's goodness even, even a hardened rock and roll musician can see that. Uh, back in the early 90s, when Bruce Springsteen and his wife, Patty Scalfa, had their first child, Sam, uh, Springsteen was so blown away by the experience that he wrote a song called Living Proof. And, and this is how he, how he put it. He said, well now, on a summer evening, in a dusky room, come a little piece of the Lord's undying light, crying like he swallowed the fiery moon. In his mother's arms, it was all the beauty I could take, like the missing words to some prayer that I I could never make. And in a world so hard and dirty, so fouled and confused, searching for a little bit of God's mercy, I found living proof. Did you hear it? someone who struggles to pray, wrestles with God, and yet, in the birth of that child, there's the spirit coming to these bones in a mother's womb so that you have this living being. What is it? It's a miracle. It's it's a sign of God's mercy. The Lord's undying light. Our children teach us that, don't they? They teach us something about the work of God, and, and yet, sadly, even in this day and age, childbirth is still a risky business. According to the 2010 census records, uh, around eight out of a thousand children in the United States die before the age of five. And while that's significantly less than back in 1960, it still reminds us that while life is a miracle, all of the things connected to life is profoundly risky business. Life is risky because because you don't know what disasters might happen. You don't know the work of God. But the preacher tells us, thirdly, you don't know what will prosper. You don't know what will succeed and what will fail. He says that in verse six. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So much of our lives feel like a kind of experiment where we really don't know what will succeed and what will fail we, we sow our seed it could be that some seed succeeds and some seed fails some plans succeed and some plans fail they all succeed they all fail we just don't know life is risky that way and because of the risks of failure we might be tempted not not to attempt anything at all not to go out our front doors, not to get on that road, because who knows where it will lead us and it might lead us to failure and disappointment. Indeed, I think the fear of failure may be in the background of verse 4, where the preacher says, he who observes the wind will not sow, he who regards the clouds will not reap, as though wind and rain doesn't happen in a regular cycle. But observing what could happen prevents us from acting. And so we don't try new things. We don't embrace change because we're fearful of the effect. We're fearful of failure. Sometimes when I get a little down and I need a good chuckle, uh, I make my way over to a website called despair.com. Now, let me explain what this is. You remember those successories that used to be all the rage in doctors and dentist offices and other businesses where they had these posters with these nature scenes or whatever with these kind of inspirational mottos? Well, despair.com is kind of the opposite of that. As opposed to successories, they're kind of despair accessories of sorts. All kinds of different things you can purchase and buy. One of the the posters there uh, that you might want to check out, it says, risks. If you never try anything new, you'll miss out on many of life's disappointments. And that's the case, isn't it? We're we're fearful of disappointment. We're fearful of failure. And so we don't risk because we don't know what will prosper. We don't know if we'll succeed or whether it'll fail. And it gets back to this, this reality that life is a risky business. It's dangerous going out our front door because we don't know what disasters might happen. We don't know what God is up to. We don't know what will succeed or what will fail. But, but life's risks, the preacher's telling us, though, though he tells us all these things are so, that we're, because of our ignorance, this is what life is like. Still, he wants us to see that that life's risks should not prevent us from moving out into God's world. In fact, he gives us three responses to the reality that life is a risky business. And the first response he encourages us toward is to be bold. To be bold. In verse one, he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, that seems a little enigmatic, but the and the commentators agree that it's a, it's a bit challenging. Some commentators suggested that the preacher here is advising that we send our bread out like a, a ship on the oceans, which, which seems to be wasteful in the short term, but will bear long-term fruit. Other commentators see verse 1 as commanding us to give our bread to the poor, And while in the short term, it seems foolish to give our daily bread to someone else so that we will starve, in the long term, there's an expectation of reward. Now, regardless of which interpretation is correct, I think what verse 1 at least is telling us is that there's something here about short-term risk, short-term suffering, that that leads to a a long-term benefit it takes some measure of courage to do that, right? Some measure of courage to, to to be willing to risk ourselves to even suffer in the short term in order to know a long-term benefit or a long-term reward. And yet that very courage, that, that very boldness, if you will, is at the very heart of the Christian life. It was Jim Elliott, the, the missionary martyr, who once famously said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. That's the short term gives up what what we can't keep that's short-term suffering short-term risk in order to gain what he cannot lose long-term reward of course jim elliott was simply reflecting on jesus's own words from matthew chapter 16 for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What is Jesus saying? That, that there is a risk involved in faith. A risk involved in following after Jesus. A risk involved that in, in, in going to a place that might cause us to suffer. And yes, we all will suffer as we follow after him. And yet, the courage, the courageous faith, the bold purpose that's required to be a disciple is exactly what he's calling you and me to. Yes, life is risky. It's dangerous. But if we do not want to waste our lives, then we shouldn't be paralyzed by the unknown or, or our ignorance about what will happen. Rather, we should heed Jesus' call to follow him, to follow where he leads, to submit to his will, to be bold in response to life's risks. But the preacher's telling us here not simply to be bold, but also to be prudent. In verse 2, he says, Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Here it seems as though the preacher's calling us to diversify our portfolios, if you will. Give, give to many people, give to seven, no, give to eight. Diversify your risk, distribute it around. Because we don't know when or where disaster will strike, it makes sense for us to be prudent, to be prudent in our affairs. But that's the challenge for us, isn't it? I mean, to be bold and to be prudent at the same time. How how do we come to a place where we're willing to risk ourselves in a bold step of faith to follow God's call while at the same time exercise discernment, exercise wisdom? How do we bring these together? Well, the preacher doesn't really answer the problem for us. Rather, he, he tells us instead that we should reckon with life's certainties in order to gain confidence to move out into the midst of life's uncertainties. Reckon with life's certainties so that we might move out with some measure of confidence into life's uncertainties. I I think that's the import of verse three. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. I mean, these things are obvious, isn't it? If you see black clouds rolling in from the east, from from the west towards us, moving east, you know it's going to rain. They're full of rain. Black clouds bring the rain. The same way, if you're out in the forest and you see a tree falling to the north or the south, guess what? It's going to fall. That's a certainty. It's going to lie there until somebody comes to chop it up or to move it out of the way. These are certainties about life. And what the preacher's saying here is that wisdom. Or prudence means taking account of the things that we do know and not being blind to them. Take account of the things that you do know. Things you do know about God, things you do know about God's world, things you know about how God's made you. Take account of the certainties of life as you move out into the uncertainties of life. Life is risky, yes. It's a dangerous business going outside your front door, yes. And that's why the preacher says, be bold, be prudent, and be constant. Be constant. In verse 6, he says, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both are like, will be good. Even though we don't know what will prosper, what are we not supposed to stop doing? Sowing seed, right? That's what he says. In the morning sow your seed, at evening withhold not your hand. Be constant be consistent continue to move out with vigor and courage don't give up put the put the next foot in front of the other continue to make your way with constancy uh, our natural response is because we don't know what's going to happen because there's great risk there's a the possibility of failure is is we want to pull back but listen some seed is going to sprout Others, Other seeds are going to fail to germinate. Some of your plans are going to succeed. Some are going to fail. What God calls us to is to engage. To engage our lives uh, in his world with boldness and prudence and constancy. But how's that possible? I mean, some of you are here this morning. And if you were to take the time to testify, you'd say, Sean, life, is, life has knocked me around. I have put myself out there over and again, only to be beaten down by life. This has failed, that's failed, this has failed, that's failed. I'm tired of engaging. I know life is risky and dangerous. I don't want to go out my front door anymore. How is it possible for you to, to be bold and to be prudent and to be constant, to respond to life's risks in the way the preacher is encouraging us? Well, the preacher gives you two reasons, two reasons why there you can get up and respond yet again, get up and engage yet again. And the first reason is simply this, God's in control. God is the one who's in control. That's part of, I think, what's between the lines in verse five, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones and the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God, who makes everything? What's the implication? God knows. The theologians, philosophers, scientists debate how the material and the immaterial part come together. God knows. It's the work of God. He's the one who makes and creates everything. And because he is the sovereign creator, we can trust the fact that he is also the sovereign ruler. The earth is the Lord, the psalmist tells us, and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein, This world belongs to our God, and this world is ruled over by our God. He is in control. And that's why, then, you can risk yourself. You can act with boldness and prudence and constancy. It's because God is a sovereign God. Does that surprise you? Well, I think for some folks it's surprising. I mean, all too often people think that Presbyterians believe in the sovereignty of God and and the, the idea that God, our, our great creator, is uh, the one who upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all his creatures, actions, and things, that somehow the sovereignty of, sovereign of God limits human activity, limits human responsibility. I mean, the criticism often comes, you Presbyterians, you believe in this sovereign God, but that just makes human beings automatons, doesn't it? Just robots or puppets. We don't have real agency. But friends, the truth is actually the exact opposite. It's because God is in control. It's because God is a sovereign God that we're free to engage his world with confidence and hope. He's the one who governs his nations. He's the one who who takes us on these different paths and as we're bold with, with prudence, as we continue to engage, he's the one who is the superintelligence in this world, the one who, who's, who's able by his own volition to rule and overrule all that human beings do. He's the one who's guiding your road all the way home. And he's chasing you not with evil and not with malevolence. Your God is chasing you with goodness and mercy. Isn't that what the psalm says? Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, or better, chase me, all the way home, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's what we've already confessed this morning. This sovereign God is your Father. This one who is in heaven, he's your Father. And as such, he's bound to you in goodness and grace through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so you're, you're free, free to go out into this world with bold purpose, yes, with prudence and wisdom, but with constancy, with courage, because your God is in control. But the preacher has another response for you this morning, and it's simply this, your life is now. Your life is now. I think verses 7 and 8 are, are trying to get at that. Light and darkness, happiness and pain, they're all part of our lives. That whether your days are short, whether your days are long, whether you have few or many, what the preacher wants you to know is now is your time. You don't have promised t- tomorrow. Today is all that you have right now. Your life is now. Friends, you only have one life, it soon will be past. What you do with your lives now, though it's risky business to go out your front door, it counts for eternity. It really does. Your life is invested with real meaning because your life is now. There was a famous cri- uh, cri- uh, cricket player, cricketer, uh, who played in the late 19th century for Cambridge University. His name was C.T. Studd. He was, he was known throughout the British Isles as the greatest cricketer that England had ever produced. Through a series of conversations through D.L. Moody, Hudson Taylor, C.T. Studd was converted and later would surrender to missionary service. He would become well known in, in British circles as one of the Cambridge Seven, seven young men in the prime of life who surrendered to missionary service in China. Throughout his missionary career, Studd would serve in China, India, and in parts of Africa. But Studd is probably most remembered for a, a short poem that he wrote early uh, after his conversion as he was preparing to go to China that, that helps us ask ourselves in, in, how we're using our days, um, how, to, how to have confidence in this, in this life as it's best spent in, in bold and prudent, constant, courageous service following the call of our King. This, this is what Stud wrote. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and for my mind would not depart only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, what hair the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, don't you see? Rather than than staying in our houses fearful of what might happen to us, fearful of this dangerous, risky life, let's go down God's road. Let's engage this life that he's given to us, this life that is now with boldness and courage, with prudence and constancy, because you and I, we serve a sovereign God who has made you for this moment and who's made this moment for you. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we bless you for your great kindness that you have given us these days in which to serve you. And so Lord Jesus, we pray that you would grant us grace to make much of your blood and righteousness, to make much of all that you are for us, but then having made much of you to to not remain at home, not to hide behind our doors, but rather to to go out on this road, wherever it will lead us, uh, even if it leads us into suffering and danger, knowing that we are following your command, your call, You you control our path, and ultimately the one who controls our path is chasing us with goodness and mercy all the way home. Lord, grant us such confidence, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and turn to number